This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Well, take a long, good look. Matt got his looks from his mother, not his father. I uh, got his voice from his mother as well. Uh, it's a joy to be here today to stand in the very place where our son, and while they're working on the sound, so it'll be fixed here in a minute. Um, don't get uptight. But uh, where he stands every Sunday proclaims the gospel, the life-transforming truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to be here. You know, I remember uh, four years ago, maybe five, Matt, it's been quite some time when he first said that he felt the Lord leading him to start a church in this area of the Metroplex. We began praying with him and praying for him as God began to lead him in uh, bringing the church and the gospel to this area. And, I mean, look around. This is incredible. Um, It's a joy to be here today and for Matt to lead us in worship. He is our number one choice of worship leaders in all of the world. David is number two. So I just, you know, you're not quite there yet, brother, but you're getting there, okay? I mean, after last, you know, this, the, the thing we had at Christmas, that was awesome, dude. That was incredible. And uh, what a, a great time we had together. Uh, I'm also honored that my mom and dad are here. Uh, I started preaching before Matt was born. My father started preaching before I was born. I'm 150, so I'm not sure what that makes him, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's good to have my parents here as well. Dad served for many years with the International Mission Board. He was a pastor, then as a missionary to Brazil, took us to a foreign country. I learned Portuguese and learned all kinds of wonderful things about living in a foreign country, then came to the United States, married my beautiful bride, and uh, of course, Matthew was born. So I'm going to start with a story about Matt this morning uh, because it's Children's Day. And so I'm going to start and end with a children's story, primarily because we have a lot of children in here today. And uh, what is a child? It starts, I'm I'm told here, from 4 to 99. So we're all children, right? Turn to your neighbor and say he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. So we're all children here today. Uh, I can remember when um, my first pastorate was in First Baptist Church, Haslett, Texas. Anybody know where Haslett, Texas is? Okay, about four or five of us. That's good. It's north of Fort Worth. Back then, it was a very small town, uh, pretty much a very small church, about 45 people, I guess, when we started. We saw the Lord bless us to well over several hundred people who were attending in the years I was there. But uh, this, this church was appealing to me. Number one, it was close to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary when I was working on my master's. But secondly, uh, it had a parsonage. I don't know if you know what a parsonage is, but a parsonage back in the day was something that the pastor lived in, the church provided, and normally it's next door to the church or on the property of the church. Now, that can be sort of constricting at times, and you're a pastor and a family, and people kind of have a tendency to think that they own the property and they can come in at any time. I remember one Sunday morning, Patty came into our living room, and there was a, a, a member standing in the living room on Sunday morning unannounced. And so those things kind of happened. But this was a... A shotgun house. You know what that is? You walk through the front door, and you can see the back door all the way through the house. There's a hallway. And so it had a door in the front and a door in the back. It's a very old house. Uh, when the wind blew in Texas, the curtains moved. 
It was one of those things. But uh, it was a great place to live as a seminary student, and it was the place where Matt was very young. Uh, I'm going to tell a story about your pastor, a little bit dangerous to invite me to come, Matt, so I'm going to tell this story, but it's not a bad one. I have some other ones if you'd like to hear. I can tell you those later, uh, but not in public. But uh, it snowed on that, uh, I think it's Sunday morning, and uh, several inches in Texas, one of those rare times. And I wanted to go to the office to study, and because my office was very close to the house, we didn't have one in, in the house that we were living in, I uh, decided to make my way through the back door and through the gate and then take a left turn and sort of go up a hill and into the back door of the educational building. And as I made my way through that back door and through the fence and through the gate, and then as I got to the door, I turned around and looked, and I saw Matt, your pastor, about this tall, still in his pajamas, and I think he was wearing his house shoes, trying to step with his little feet and his little legs in exactly the same place where his dad had stepped. And I let him do that for a few moments, and I thought, this is an incredible lesson. And I've never forgotten that lesson to this day. First, as a parent, step wisely, because your children are following in your footsteps. And the choices that we make with the lives that we live will impact our children as well. So I want to encourage you as you develop as, as a disciple of Christ, as you follow the Lord, step wisely as a parent. Because your children, I believe, catch more than you teach them. Secondly, it helped me think about my relationship to God my Father. For as a child, much like my young son, who was stepping where I had stepped, left footprints for me to follow. They were a guide, so to speak, so that as I know where he stepped, I can step. Where I come to the realization how he journeyed, how he traveled, I can do the same. And so it becomes important and imperative for us as disciples that as we study the life and the ministry of Christ, that we know as much as we can about him so that we can know where he stepped, the footprints that he left, so that as we follow in those footprints, we can then make the journey as he made the journey and follow him as a disciple of Christ. And in this text in John chapter 5, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 5 this morning. I want us to take a quick look at the footprints that Christ leaves. He leaves four critical footprints for us to emulate, for us to follow as an example for us as we seek to live out our life and make the journey that we are called and and challenged to make and following in the footsteps of Christ to become all that Christ became so that we, like Christ, can experience these incredible supernatural things that I believe God wants to bring into our lives and uh, he wants us to experience. And so as we take a look at the text, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in John chapter 5, verse 17, in honor of God's word. And I'd like for us to read from God's word this morning, John 5, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Let's read it together. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but is even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. God, thank you for the joy that's been ours to celebrate the living word becoming flesh in the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. 
This morning as we open your word, I pray that now your written word would be used by the living word, your son Jesus Christ, to help us understand, Lord, where you step so that we might step and experience the fullness of what you intend for us to experience as we follow you. Use this time. Encourage us by it. And may you be glorified in all that is said and done in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I think it's important that uh, before we begin in our study that it's safe for us to conclude that the conversation that is recorded in this text is not just a conversation for a, a report or for a record of the account. There's something more going on here. And it's important that we start with John chapter 1, verse 1 to understand the context of this text. John chapter 5, verse 1 describes a time in which all of Israel was experiencing not only the Sabbath, which was a holy day, but also they were experiencing the Passover. The Passover was an important time. It was a time when everybody made a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate together as a nation and as the family of God, the Passover. John records that Christ and his disciples on this occasion were making their way into the temple to celebrate not only the Sabbath, but also the Passover. And as he does, the Bible describes him going into the sheep gate. And as he makes his way through the sheep gate, it's important to understand that that sheep gate on the direction toward the temple would take him by the pool of Bethesda, where there was a pool with five beautiful colonnades. It was a beautiful structure to behold, but the thing that made it quite interesting was not only was it a pool called Bethesda with five colonnades, but there had assembled some, a group of people there who believed in the superstition that if the finger of God stirred the water, the first one in the water would be healed. And as a result of that superstition, if you can imagine, if you had an infirmity, if you had a sickness, if you had a, 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 a problem physically or whatever you might have, you would put your hope in that superstition, believing that when God's finger stirred that water, if you could be there and be the first in the water, you would receive a healing. And I can imagine, we don't know how many, but if you believed in that superstition, you would be there. So I, I can imagine there were dozens, maybe hundreds of people who believed in this superstition, who had gathered there, who had made a home there, awaiting for the finger of God to stir the pool of the water so that that superstition could become reality. And so as Jesus is passing by the pool of Bethesda, he not only sees the beautiful colonnades, but he sees this gathering, this large number of people who have believed in the superstition that if they are the first in the water, they would be healed when the finger of God stirs the water. And as he's passing by, he happens to notice in John chapter 5, one man out of all the people that are gathered there. It's a man who has been at this pool for 38 years. Now think about that. 38 years. That's a long time. To be in one place waiting on God to receive a miracle that you desperately need and you believe that the only solution is to be first in the water when the finger of God stirs that water. Christ passes by and sees him there. Now, you and I probably would notice him because he's been there 38 years. Uh, we lived in Colorado before we came here in Castle Rock, and we had neighbors who liked to go camping. And I have watched many times from my office window my neighbors from across the street who are going to camp only for the weekend take more paraphernalia and more stuff than you could possibly imagine. I mean, it took my neighbor almost an hour to pack his car in order to go to spend a weekend in the mountains. 
Imagine a man who's been there 38 years. He's lived by this pool for a long time. He's got all kinds of things that would require and things that he would need in order to maintain and sustain life while he's at this pool. Not only would that bring your attention, but more than likely his condition would cause you to look at him. And so Christ, as he's walking by, notices this man and all the things that are there. But what draws his attention is the fact that God is directing his attention to this man because this is the moment for his miracle. He's been waiting on God for 38 years, and this is the moment. He's going to encounter Christ, and he's going to receive a miracle. Christ looks at the man, and he asks him a strange question. He says, sir, would you like to be healed? Sounds insensitive on the surface, but the reality is... It's not. Did you know there are a lot of people that like their infirmities? They just do. They like their condition. They don't want it to change. Because what they know is better than what they don't know. And so he asked this man, do you want to be healed? The man obviously in the discussion says, yes, I want to be healed. But the problem is, I am so lame, I am so crippled, but by the time the water is stirred by the finger of God, someone beats me there and I cannot get there on my own. In my opinion, that's an acknowledgement of his inability to save himself. He recognizes his need and his inability to save himself. So Christ does the compassionate thing. This one man of all these hundreds possibly who are there, he says, rise, roll up your bed, and walk. He says it with such authority that the man believes in the words of Christ. And he rises immediately. He rolls up his bed, and he proceeds to walk to the temple. You see, it's been 38 years that he could go to the temple to worship. It's not only the Sabbath, but it is now the Passover. And for 38 years, he's not been permitted to go to church. Why? He's believed to have been a sinner. That's the reason for his condition. Aren't you glad we welcome sinners in the church today? Come on now. Aren't you glad we welcome sinners in the church? Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. He welcomes sinners. And so the man who has not been welcomed finally finds his way into the temple. And as he's walking through the front gate into the court, the open court, a religious greeter, like some of we have here today, says, hey, buddy, don't you know that you're not supposed to be carrying your mallet on the Sabbath? It is unlawful for you to do so. The man pleased his innocence. He said, I don't know, man, but there was a guy, you know, I was out of the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, and he said with such authority to rise, roll up your bed and walk. I did exactly what he said, and I, I believe that he had the authority to heal me. He has the authority to let me carry my, my bed on the Sabbath. They asked who he was. He said, I don't know who the guy is. He didn't know his name. He just knew he was healed. Later, Christ finds him in the temple And they have a a dialogue and a discussion. And I believe in that discussion, when Christ says to him, go and sin no more, the man becomes a believer in Christ and a disciple of the Lord. He's so excited about knowing not only the name, but now now having been forgiven by the Lord, that he seeks out those who had questioned him earlier, thinking that maybe they too want to place their faith and trust in Christ. They don't, but now they have his name. And now that they have his name, they seek Jesus out. Now, we don't have a lot of the conversation between these religious elite and Christ in this record of of the Gospel of John, but we have enough to know that Jesus is telling these unbelievers, as well as us today, 
four important footprints that he leaves for us in order so that as we follow them, we too can join God in what God is doing. So I want to take a look at those footprints this morning, and let's begin with verse 17. The first footprint that he leaves is that he was attentive to the Father's activity. He was attentive to the Father's activity. In other words, he, he lived his life in such a way that he was aware, he was attentive when God was at work. He knew that God was at work all around him, and as a result of that, he was watching, waiting, and looking to see where God was at work. Notice the text in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. It's interesting to me that they don't ask him a question, at least not according to the record of, of John in this gospel account, but Christ answers their concerns anyway. It helps me realize that even though I may not speak certain things, he knows what I'm thinking and he knows what I'm feeling. And Christ, knowing all, introduces himself in this way. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Notice he describes himself, first of all, by the relationship that he has with the father. He calls him my father. That is a personal pronoun. He's my father. That is an intimate relationship that he has with the father because he is the father's son. That relationship has been cultivated. It's been worked on. It's been developed. He has walked. He has prayed. He has been in fellowship with his father to the point and to the degree that in that relationship, he understands that because God is at work, notice my father is working until now. He's describing to these guys, my father is presently working. This is the present tense. He's presently working. And I believe he's saying to them and to us, there's never a moment, there's never a time when God is not at work. He's not an absentee landlord. He is not someone who has left us here to live life on our own and for the world to spend by itself. God, is, who is sovereign, is on his throne. He is orchestrating everything and everyone in order to accomplish and fulfill his will. He is working constantly and continually, he says to them. But he also says, not only was he working when this man was healed at the pool of Bethesda, but he's working even until now. What does he mean by that? I scratched my head about that all week and have for many, many, many years actually reading this passage. I believe he's saying to them and to us, that even though you seek to kill me, God is working in the motive that you have as a result of this interaction because I know that ultimately it's God's will because this journey is going to lead me to a cross where I will die for the sins of those who place their faith and trust in me. You see, he recognized and realized that, that God was working even in the midst of persecution. I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that God's working only in the good things. Only in the fun times. Only when we're opening presents on Christmas morning when everything is joyous. But you know, there's a lot of people who celebrated Christmas differently than possibly you did. It's a hard time. It's a difficult time. And we have a tendency in these difficult, dark, depressing, lonely moments to wonder, God, are you at work? Maybe even through persecution and hardship and difficulty and trial. And yet we have to see that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Christ realized that even in this moment when these people sought to persecute him, God was still at work and he's still working. But notice the beautiful revelation, and I am working. God is presently working 
And because he is presently working, I too now respond to that activity and I join God in what God is doing. When he passed by that pool of Bethesda and he saw that man there out of the hundreds who possibly were gathered there, that was the moment for that man's miracle. Imagine this man waiting 38 years wondering, God, are you at work? God, have you forgotten about me? God, do you know that I'm here? And he wondered and he doubted and he questioned and he longed for healing. And now this is the moment. And Christ is saying to him and to us, for 38 years I was at work in that man's circumstance, in his situation, while he sat by that pool of Bethesda. And this was the moment in which God then brought about the healing that he desperately needed and he desired. Why did he do that? Because he was aware, he was attentive to the Father's activity. That's the first footprint that he leaves. We, like Christ, must step into that footprint because God is at work all around you. He is. And because he's at work all around you, we need to learn to be attentive to the activity of the Lord. Secondly, we need to be available, as Christ was, to the Father's activity. Notice in the text, it's interesting in verse 18, where now John records these, these men who take upon themselves to take Christ through somewhat of a, a trial, an, an inquisition, seeking to find evidence which they can convict him and eventually kill him. Notice their objective. It says in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. We see in verse 6, prior to verse 17, that they wanted to persecute him. Now we see that they want to kill him. You see, they want to persecute him. They want to prosecute him, and they want to execute him, to kill him, to render him no longer a problem for them in their religious practice. They are not interested here in God's agenda. They don't care if God's at work at all. They're not even concerned about the man who was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years who had received his healing. All they're concerned about is about their man-made rules and their man-made religion. And so they approach God with ulterior motives, unavailable, unconcerned, disinterested in what God is doing and what Christ has just done. Notice why? What is their objection? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were objecting to Christ primarily because, notice, he was breaking the Sabbath. In other words, they believed that he was committing sin against God's law. The reality is he was not sinning against God's law because if God is at work and he joined God's activity, he's not violating God's work nor God's law. It was man-made law. It wasn't God's law that they were seeking to follow. Secondly, he was claiming to be God's son. And we know as a result of celebration of Christmas that he, in fact, was God's son. There was supernatural in vitro fertilization. God was sent down through the Holy Spirit, placed in Mary's womb. He did not have an earthly father, and he was born of a virgin named Mary to be fully God and to be fully man. And so he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the Son of God. But notice they also were upset because he considered himself to be equal with God. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, while there is an order there, the three are one and the three are equal. So he was, as God's Son, equal to the Father. The point that I want to make here is this. These cynics, these critics, these skeptics, they were not interested. They were not open. 
They were not available to what God was doing. They were unconcerned with anything but their own personal agenda. But Christ, who enters the scene at the Pool of Bethesda, doesn't bring an agenda. He's open to the activity of God. He's available to what God is doing. He steps into what God is doing, and he becomes the vessel that God uses to bring healing to this man. I think you and I sometimes miss the activity of God around us because we're simply not available to what God is wanting to do. God, that didn't really fit with my agenda. That's not on my schedule. That's not what I had planned. These are not my hopes and dreams. Take, for example, Joseph, who we just celebrated, who was the father of, of Jesus, or the, not the, the stepfather, I guess, maybe, of Christ. I mean, he had dreams, he had hopes, he had expectations. Can you imagine? Uh, betrothed to a beautiful lady that he fell in love with. He had paid the dowry. Uh, he was expecting her to be a certain way when she walked down the aisle. Um, expected that he would have a certain sort of a lifestyle, you know, maybe a uh, three-bedroom house with a couple of dogs and, you know, the right kind of cart to drive. He was a carpenter and maybe a couple of children along the way. And now all of a sudden, all of those dreams are shattered because God has a different plan. Imagine if Joseph was unavailable to the plan that God had. And he didn't listen to the angel's message that told him that what was in her womb was of the Lord and that he should marry her. And when that baby was born, name him Jesus. And we know that, Jesus, that Joseph did exactly what God told him to do because he was available to the plan of God. I mean, I'm not sure what God is calling you to do, what he's asking, what he's requiring, what he's demanding, what he's leading you to do. But if you're not available, if you don't step into that footprint that Christ leads for us in his availability and become like him and say, Lord... I put my plans, my agenda, my things on the altar, and I die to myself, and I will step in and be available to whatever you want to do and whatever you want to bring into my life. Thirdly, Christ was abandoned to the Father's activity. Notice in the text, verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, interesting to me that there's no dialogue, there's no conversation. Christ, again, is aware of what they're thinking and wanting to then even express more about himself to them. He's revealing himself to these Skeptics to these people who are unbelievers. So he responds with incredible authority. I mean, this is Christ assuming the position that is rightfully his because of who he is. It's an authoritative position. He's not asking, he's telling. Truly, truly, I say to you, that's what he's saying, pretty forceful, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Look at that. Look at it deeply. The son can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, without asking the father. Is that what he said? It's not, is it? The son can do nothing of his own accord. In other words, the son recognizes his limitations. He knows that he will not step outside of the will of God and choose his ways over God's ways. He recognizes that he can do nothing without the father. Equally, you and I can do nothing without the Father. We can build a Tower of Babel, but it won't last. It will fall. And so Christ is understanding. He's recognizing those limitations. Notice he restricts himself in those limitations. He said, but he only does what he sees the Father doing. In other words, he's going around and he's observing. He's, a, he's attentive and he's available to what God is doing. And now God is 
showing him what he is doing. He sees God at work. And once he sees God at work, he recognizes now that it's time for him to step into that activity. And he receives what the father is doing because he said, whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That word whatever bothers me. Does it bother you? God can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, whoever he wants, anytime he wants, without your permission. Wait a minute. Really? Yes. He can. He doesn't invite me into the boardroom in heaven and ask me what I think. Now, this church has elders, doesn't it? And you guys have an elder meeting, and you pray, and you discuss, and you seek God's will. We're not a part of those discussions. God's will is God's will, and God can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, to whoever he wants, any time he wants, at his pleasure to fulfill his purpose and his plan. We are to be abandoned to that. Say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He can do whatever he wants. But the beautiful side of that is, and not only just the negative, but there's a positive, God can do whatever he wants, meaning that God can do the supernatural. God can do the supernatural. Because you see, it took supernatural activity to bring that man who was waiting on his healing for 38 years to bring about that healing. And there are times and there are moments when God invites us to step into his will and to join his activity. And we look at what he is inviting us to join him in and we say, Lord, there's no way in the world that is possible unless you intervene, unless you make it reality. I don't have the, the wisdom. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power nor the resources to accomplish and achieve what you're inviting me to do as I join you in what you're doing. I can do those whatevers that seem impossible. But notice, he said, for whatever the father does, notice that the son does likewise. In other words, the son is stepping where the father is stepped. The son is doing exactly what the father is doing. Have you ever had anybody uh, uh, try to teach you how to do something, maybe working on a car, and they're uh, showing you how to do it, and then after they show you how to do it, you try to do it a different way than what they did it? doesn't work so well, does it? And here the father is showing the son what he is doing and how he is going to do it. And the son is doing likewise what the father is doing. We, like Christ, must abandon to his will, to his ways, and to his work if we ever hope to join God in the supernatural activity that I believe only he can do through our obedience to him. Lastly, we see that Jesus left the footprint that he was assured of the father's activity. He was assured of the Father's activity. Interesting verse, verse 20. There are four assurances. For the Father loves the Son. Christ was sure that the Father loved the Son. I mean, he was sure. There was no doubt whether or not he was loved or not. You know, the reality is that I think sometimes you and I come to terms with that question within our own selves when God asks us to endure or to step into things that we may not quite like or understand or, or, or know what the outcome is, is, Lord, do you really love me? Or if you really love me, would you invite me to do this? Would you ask me to do this? Would you bring this into my life? I know you're working through this activity. I know you're working through this event. I know you're working through this difficulty, but I don't see you. I don't feel you, but, but Lord, do you really love me? And the question is Yes. He loves us with the same everlasting love that he loves his son. And we can trust him. You know why? 
Because Christ could trust him. Christ could trust his father because he knew his father loved him. And he wouldn't bring anything into his life that wouldn't, would be for any other reason other than love. And sometimes we question, Lord, if you love me, would you really put me through this? Would you really ask this of me? And yet we need to look deep within the word of God and the heart of God and see that, yes, he loves us with an unconditional love. And it's because that he loves us that he invites us to join him in who wants to do in us and through us. He had a clear understanding of God's love, but he had a, also a confident, he was confident about God showing him everything that God was doing. Notice, for the father loves the son and the, shows him all that he himself is doing. Christ was confident that God would show him all that he was doing. All that he was doing. Not some, not in part, but all that he was doing. You ever been in a place, in a position in your life where you couldn't see the end of the line? You couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel? By the way, you know that's, that, that, that phrase is a lie. When people try to console us and we're going through dark and difficult times and they say to us, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Keep going. Persevere. Work hard. Keep going. Right? Anybody said that or used that? Why is that a lie? Because Jesus is the light. And the light is with us in the darkness. He's with us in the tunnel. He's not at the end of the journey. He's with us in the journey as we go through the journey. And so we need to understand that we, we, we may not always see at the moment exactly what he is doing and why he's doing what he's doing, but Christ was fully confident that God would show him in his time and in his way if he would simply wait on the Lord to show him. Notice the second part of that verse, and greater works than these will he show him. He was convinced that God was not through showing him greater things that he would accomplish and achieve through Christ. There were more things that were coming down the pike. And he believed that greater things were coming. I think sometimes we have a tendency to evaluate as we reflect upon our resume and come to conclusions as to all the great things that God has bestowed upon us that it can't get any better than this. Well, hold on. Greater things are coming. Not only for you individually but for you as a church. I pass by your five acres all the time. Did you know that the early church didn't have a nice place of worship? They didn't meet in a, a, a beautiful temple or in a building. They probably met in a cafeteria if they had one back then, just like you're meeting today. And they were happy to do so. One of these days, greater things are coming. Not just in a building, but in the reach of the gospel through the ministries of this church as you continue to advance that gospel in this community. God's not done with you yet. There are greater things coming. And he will show you as you step into that activity by faith, trusting him, he will lead you. He will reveal to you those greater things. Notice last thing, greater works than these will he show him. What's the purpose of the activity? For our Boasting so that we can be proud, so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well done, look what we've accomplished. No, so that you will marvel. Who's he speaking to? Unbelievers. He's saying, you know, God's going to show me greater things to come, not 
for any other purpose other than for opening your eyes and taking you on a journey of faith. God's activity is going to be so great that you're not going to be able to ignore it and say, how did that happen? And the only answer that they're going to be able to give is, God did it. God did it. That's the only answer. There were some young parents who were uh, first-time parents. Any first-time parents here? None? Lots? I know one back there. Where is he? He, he preached the other day. One, he's, on, he's one of your staff members. Um, I saw him holding that baby up, on the, up uh, last uh, Friday night. Was it Friday night? Seemed like a long time ago, wasn't it? And uh, they were looking for ways to teach their children, you know, their child, their son, about God. And uh, they came to a conclusion that um, every time they would see something so spectacular that can only be explained by God did it, they would point that out to their son and they would ask the question, who did that? And together they would chime in, God did. And so the practice went for years. Someone like, when they'd see the moon, they'd point to the moon and their son, and they'd make him look at the sun on the moon and say, who did it? And together they would chime in, the three of them, God did. Or they would be maybe in Colorado, the state I just left, see the beautiful mountains, and they'd point to those and say, who made the mountains? Who did this? Together they would say, God did it. And this went on for a number of years until finally one day, mom came to the door of her son's room and saw a wreck unlike any mess she had ever seen. Kind of like Christmas morning wreck, okay? I've seen the pictures of my son's living room. I know what that looks like. Yours probably look the same. And so in, you know, this mother type of tone with that look that only mothers can give, you know what kind of look that is? That only mothers can give? It's inborn in them, isn't it? And she looked at her son, and she put her hands on her hips, and she said, Who did this? And with enthusiasm and with incredible confidence, he didn't hesitate. He said, God did it. (laughs) You know, God gets blamed for a lot of things. But the fact is, God wants to do a work in you and through you that can only be credited with the fact that God did it. It'll be so spectacular, it'll be so amazing that only God can take the credit and get the glory for it. It'll be so great that when God gets through doing what he wants to do in you and through you, unbelievers will marvel at the activity of God. So I don't know what brought you here today, but I know God did. God brought you here for a purpose and for a reason. He is sovereign. He's not abdicated his throne, and he's still Lord. He is orchestrating everything in your life and around your life to bring you to the place where you can receive all that he intends for you to receive through faith in him. So if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, you're not here by accident. God is at work in your life right now seeking to draw you unto his son, Jesus Christ, to put your faith and trust in him. All you have to do is to acknowledge, God, you're working in my life. I understand and know that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. And by faith, I will adjust my life in such a way that I will step into the activity that you're doing to bring me to faith in your son, Christ. And maybe today you need to make that decision. Maybe you made that decision at our event this weekend. And today is the day you want to seal that 
decision. You want to step out in faith and commit to making that decision and letting someone know about your desire to follow Christ. Maybe you're a believer already and you're just attending this church. It's not by accident that God's brought you to this fellowship and to this family. God wants you here to fulfill his purpose and his plans, not just for you personally and for your family, but for the kingdom that he wants to build to this church. And so we invite you to step into the activity that God is doing in your life and becoming a part of the family that God has here at the trails and join God in what God is going to do in and through you. Maybe there's some of us here this morning like that man who's been at the pool for 38 years. There's been some dark times, some disappointing times, some struggling times. You're not quite sure. You can't quite see all that God is doing. And you're on the verge, you're on the precipice of jumping off the cliff and walking away from the Lord altogether. Let me encourage you to be reminded, God has not abdicated his throne. He's still Lord and he's still King of Kings. He's actively working right now, whether you recognize him, see him, or feel him or not, in your life to bring you to the point and to the place where he can reveal to you what he is doing in his time and in his way. And when he reveals to you what he's doing, that's his invitation for you to step in to that activity and join God in the miraculous things that he wants to bring into your life. You may have waited like this man for 38 years, but today can be the moment of your miracle. I love Hallmark movies. I've learned to love Hallmark movies. <laughs> no man really loves Hallmark movies unless you've been married to the same lady for 44 years. And uh, we watch them on a regular basis in our house, and there's always the Christmas miracle, right? Everybody's longing for a Christmas miracle. But the greatest miracle of all was not just Christ coming and being born of a virgin named Mary in an old town called Bethlehem to be the Savior of the world, but to be your Savior. And we cannot in of ourselves save ourselves. And out of desperation, if we long and look to him and admit our need, he will come to our aid and he will save us. What a great and beautiful reminder that is in this weekend as we have just celebrated the birth of Christ. Let me invite you to be attentive to what God is doing around you because he's at work. Be available to whatever he wants to bring into your life. Abandon your will to his will. And step into what God wants to bring into your life because he has great things planned in you and through you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we have today to be challenged by this passage in a real way. Lord, only you know who we are and where we are and where we stand before you at this moment. Maybe there's some this morning that need to place their faith and trust in you. Maybe there are some who have gotten to the place and the point of their life they no longer see you, feel you, or understand how you're working in their circumstance and their situation. Lord, maybe there are some of us who have settled in our comfort zone, become complacent with where we are in our journey. Lord, open our eyes, show us more to come. Help us make the adjustments that are needed to step into your activity and join you and what you and you alone can do in us and through us. Lord, we are totally dependent upon you. Humble us in a way that we might look to you 
and lean on you as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 